FMX Network Production. Josie's on a vacation far away. Come around and talk it over. So many things that I want to say. You know a new view from inside the truck. X racer to racer and eye to eye. A casual look into the personalities of the sport and an experienced perspective into the action from week to week. It's Jason Thomas's industry seating. Presented by Pirelli Tires and brought to you by Blendsall, Plum Creek Funding, Works Connection, and Fly Racing. All right, it's Sunday. Welcome to Industry Seating. My name is Jason Thomas, and where do we start? Uh, seems the world's going to hell in a handbasket. That's my professional observation. I have been uh, I've been at home for let's see nine days. Uh, upon arriving from Indianapolis, our company felt it was in the best interest of the uh, basically anyone who travels, which there are several of us across the different brands that WPS owns that we should stay home, uh, for a week. That was the initial plan. So that meant I would be working from home this entire past week, which I did. That then grew to adding another week just to, uh, watch for the incubation period and, and see if anyone, uh, was symptomatic or dealing with a possible coronavirus case. And for us, you know, in the beginning, it was more about people who could be exposed out in the world, bringing it back to Idaho and more specifically bringing it back into the Western power sports community at work and then exposing and getting people sick that otherwise would not uh, be exposed to it. So super valid concern. We had a lot of meetings at work about it, just trying to figure out what the best course of action was. And that's been, that's been a moving target uh, as we're learning more and uh, things are transpiring um, I, I think it was definitely in the best interest of, uh, for everyone that we take precautions because for myself, uh, I'm a pretty healthy, you know, younger to middle-aged guy. And, uh, you know, from everything I've read, I'm not at serious risk for life threatening complications, but just because that means I'm not, if I expose someone at Western power sports to it they could be right. There are lots of different health situations and age groups and all, or all sorts of things in the, the team that I'm on that comprises fly racing and Western power sports. So, uh, I applaud Western power sports for the steps they've taken. And, uh, I think that most places are in the let's be over cautious. And if, if we veer too far into caution, that's much better than the opposite side of not doing the right things and getting people sick or worse. So, uh, that's been my situation. I'll be at home another week this week and, uh, that'll be, shoot, that'll be the longest I've ever been, especially in Idaho at home. Um, the closest comparison I could have to it would be suffering like a big injury where you're just at home for weeks and months at a time. But then, you know, even then, most of the time I was able to get out and go to restaurants and go have drinks with my buddies because I knew I wasn't racing for a long time. So it was definitely a different situation than it is now. So as for me, 
again, I'll be home this week again, next weekend. And, and maybe it goes longer. I don't know. Hopefully I am not infected. Uh, I have not been tested. Um, I know that there are some cases in Idaho and, uh, we'll, we'll just have to see the cases are climbing quickly. And, you know, my opinion is that there are a lot of people that are infected that don't know it. Uh, hopefully I'm not one of them, but you never really know. Uh, I am in that age group where I could be asymptomatic and, and carry it. So, uh, yeah, praying for everyone, regardless of what your religious beliefs are, um, help your fellow people out there. Uh, I, I've seen a lot of instances of people doing a lot of good in the world and I've seen some not so good. So, um, I think people are going to need each other more than we ever have. And I am one of those people that, you know, in, in hard times, I remember who helped and who didn't. And I think that's going to be, that's going to be present in business as well. People that stepped up and went the extra mile and really tried to take care of those that were less fortunate, I think will be remembered. And, uh, I know in the business that I'm in right now, that was certainly the case in the 2008, 2009, uh, housing crisis when the account, you know, the great recession, they call it, uh, the company I work for took leaps and bounds forward because they were willing to help businesses large and small doing whatever it took. And, uh, I hope that's how we approach this new situation and, uh, I think that businesses that do survive will remember who was there for them and who wasn't. So anyway, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm stuck in my house, been running a lot. I've been um, doing as many exercises as I can just to kill time. I've been riding my street bike a lot. Um, hopefully I'll get to do some dirt biking, but I don't have one at the moment. So I need to sort that out. But uh, just been trying to find things to do to stay busy other than just normal workload. Um, it's a totally different dynamic for me than it normally is. Normally I'd be flying all over the place and it would be prime time race season for me where I'm working and traveling more than ever. So being home in the spring and being home, uh, all day, every day has, uh, certainly changed my perspective on things and, um, yeah, given me time to do things I, I wouldn't normally do. I've, I've gotten my house and, lots of things more organized than they've ever been. So, you know, it's all about silver linings for me. I think there will be a lot of negative and we're already feeling that, um, there are negatives everywhere you look. If you turn the news on, that's all there is, is, is darkness and doom and gloom and negative. So, uh, for me, I'm, I'm absorbing that and making smart decisions for myself as we all have to do. But at the same time, I'm going to try to find ways that you know, okay, what's possible that I wouldn't have had time to do? What could I learn about or read about or do things that I, I would just never take the time to slow down to do? And I think it's really important as just people for us to, to do that. Um, everybody's life's a little different, but mine's really fast paced and I don't take a breath most of the time to look at the world around me and absorb any of that stuff. So uh, yesterday I went for a hike and it was one of the only times I could remember where I was in zero hurry. And I even stopped and I'm like, I, I was like walking and looking at something on my phone and trying to multitask. And I, I stopped myself and I was just like, why are you doing that? Why don't you just stop and do one thing and then you can keep going because you literally have nothing to do. There's no time frame. It's a Saturday. No one's waiting on you. No one's expecting you anywhere. You don't have any work to be done. So just relax. And I had to like, vocally tell myself that because it's so out of character for me. 
Um, but yeah, that's really where I'm at is just trying to make sense of these things, uh, prepare for life when it does resume, because I, I do believe in a few months, uh, we're going to get back to somewhat of normalcy. Um, it, it's going to be a rough few months, I think for a lot of people and a lot of businesses and just society in general, we're all going to have to, uh, take a hard look in the mirror and, and sort through some things and we'll see how bad that really gets. But we're already at a point where it's, it's bad, right? Businesses are laying their, their, their employees off and, uh, our small racing world is at a complete standstill sports in general at our complete standstill. Uh, and we may be just at the beginning of this thing. So I think trying to support, you know, local businesses, small businesses that are going to be hit the hardest is a big deal. And then trying to maintain some sense of normalcy, I think is important because if you, if you don't, everything else you, you see around you is going to be bad. I think there's not going to be positive tones. So I, you know, I really applaud, uh, pro motocross and, uh, everybody involved there from MX sports, um, putting on that Facebook live of Mount Morris from 2014 yesterday. That was pretty awesome. Everybody that tuned in and was participating, I think had a great time. It was such a cool distraction from just everything that's going on. And, literally everything that involves coronavirus, it can really take a toll on your, your psyche and just your mental state. Um, and it was for me, I I completely checked out on all the things, you know, going on with the rest of the world. And I was just watching moto, right. Watching how awesome James Stewart was back then. And and that wasn't even his prime, right. Um, watching Trey Kennard, who's been retired for a few years. And I, it was funny to watch some of the content, you know, the comments on Facebook and I was having a great time cracking jokes too, but people remembering how good Kennard was and he missed so many races with injury that I think that was lost on a lot of people is that when he was on, he was as good as anyone out there. Uh, going back to Roxon's KTM days was cool, right? You, he's, he's been so removed from that part of his career, watching Dungey and just seeing, the differences in the styles, you know, Dungey just taking forever to get warmed up and then make moves on guys. And, uh, it was just a great throwback to, uh, a, a part of racing that some of this stuff, I just simply forgotten. I I'm, it was a nice refresher, but I looked at it and I'm watching. I'm like, man, I totally forgot that he was doing that or wearing that or whatever. Um, you know, Josh Grant wearing one industries, which is now, you know, no longer in business. There was just so many weird things like that that were um, just fun to, to rethink and, and walk through again. So I'm hoping that there are more of those. I thought it was a really cool idea. I thought it went really well. Had some file issues that we had to take a break for, but that's you know that's to be expected. It's a, a brand new idea and kind of thrown together. So um, I applaud MXGP. They were replaying the Argentina MXGP. And uh, yeah, okay, we didn't have the the Facebook live dynamic of it, but it was a way for people to watch racing again. And for a weekend you had an outdoor national and then you had an MXGP on the same weekend to rewatch. And that's pretty cool. That's, it's a nice distraction from all the chaos going on. And I thought Jason Wigand did a great job on his weed show, uh, this week of just reminding people of what racing is. It's, it's a, it's an escape for a lot of people and you know, not, not everyone loves their job, right? A lot of people suffer through 
their job they, to make money and provide for their family and sports, whether it's racing or whatever sport is your favorite, that's your escape. And that's your happy place to go to and watch stuff and be entertained. And I think we have to all find ways to maintain that because if, if it's just becomes work and nothing to look forward to, that's a really somber place to be. Uh, I saw a lot of talk about the release of the new uh, outdoor national schedule, Lucas Oil Pro Motocross schedule. And for me, you know, okay, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it does have to get amended again. And maybe it is wishful thinking that we're back running on June 13th. I don't know. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that on the morning of June 13th, I'm either standing at that racetrack watching or I'm tuned in on the NBC Sports Gold app and watching practice. Um, that's my hope. If that changes, yeah, we'll see. I mean, there's a there's what three months till that's supposed to go off a little less than that. So let's hope that the world calms down, this gets under control somewhat, and we can go racing. And if it can't, then there will be more adjustments made, right? They've already made moves, and and I I can't guarantee it because I'm not the one making the decisions, but I, I would feel very confident that they are going to be very flexible on how this all goes. They want to get racing in the same thing goes for supercross. They are planning on getting all 17 rounds in finishing this series. When that happens, I think that's TBA, right? And and we're going to have to be more flexible and we're going to have to be more, uh, able and willing to adjust our schedules, adjust priorities and amend everything that we maybe would have been rigid on before, you know, rider contracts typically end and turn over on October 1st. I think you're going to see a lot of changes in that category because if Feld says, Hey, we have to get these races in and the teams, you know, they're going to go racing. Well, yeah. Okay. A contract can be amended. It can be, that can be done in one day, right? You type up a page, you, everyone signs it and Boom, done. Yeah, now your contract goes till the end of the, the end of the year. Whatever that looks like. Maybe it's November 1st, right? If the series wrapped up in October, they would all amend a month and it's not the end of the world, right? These things can be worked around. I just think that everyone's going to have to approach the situation with a willingness to compromise more than ever before. And, and I really believe we will because at the end of the day, whether you're a fan, you're a racer, you work in the industry, you're a sponsor of the series, uh, any of the above, any, any aspect of it, it's in your best interest to be flexible. That There is no person, in my opinion, there's nobody involved in this sport where it does not benefit them to be flexible to get all the racing in. And if that takes us going into the winter months, you know, before the first of the year, so be it. I don't want to be the person that has to logistically sort that out, nor am I qualified or capable, but I think they're going to look at every single option to, you know, have the continuity and get the series that everybody wants. So how that looks, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, but I, that's what I'm hearing from every facet of, you know, this, uh, all the layoffs that you heard from Feld Motorsports. I think the plan is for those to be temporary and, you know, when it looks like they're going to be able to go up and, and racing again, you know, my hope and what I hear is that, you know, the majority, if not all of those people will be brought back. I can't promise that. I don't, I haven't been told that directly, but I do not believe that Feld Entertainment has any plan of ceasing business, right? So this is a, 
stopgap measure to, you know, maintain their ability to crank this machine back up without bleeding off all of their, you know, cash on hand. Uh, and I think that's a pretty common theme throughout business right now is they're going to do everything they can for their workforce, but at the same time, they have to ensure their ability to conduct business again once it's possible. And I, I would assume there are some very hard decisions. Uh, there's a very good people at these businesses around the world that are making very, very difficult and very, um, painful and life changing decisions for a lot of people and a lot of families. So let's hope for that's all temporary, especially, you know, in our little moto bubble. Um, but that's, I think that's where we sit as far as the racing schedule. Uh, obviously the, the schedule came out for motocross. We know that June 13th and then, uh, would wrap looked like Labor Day weekend. I think what September 5th, I don't have a calendar right in front of me, but first weekend of September, which is right when uh, college football kicks off too. Um, and they've always had to be cognizant of college football for, uh, for television time. So that's all TBA. I know that's the official schedule, but I think that's still a moving target long-term, um, as the world evolves around this coronavirus. Uh, you know, as I said, Supercross would follow right behind that. They would try to cram in as many races as possible between September and October. And I think that could include double headers. And I think that could include, uh, some sort of midweek round where they would go like Saturday and Wednesday, something like that. They could have the dirt in the venue. They could have everyone stay in town. Um, mechanics and teams and riders would all basically just have a day or two off, you know, in that city and then go racing again and give them a time to rest and rebuild the bikes, um, and then conduct, you know, conduct another event. It real it would be really cool for, for fans, right? If you have the means, which I know that's going to be an ever changing thing right now. But if you say, even if you lived in that town to have a race on Saturday and a race on Wednesday, some people could travel. They would spend a couple of days in the city and, and get a little mini vacation and get two races in. I think that would be pretty cool. Um, those are all obviously tentative plans, um, but you have to make plans, right? If you're, if you're not making plans, I don't think you can be prepared to act quickly. Even if those plans have to be changed multiple times, I think every step forward in planning is going to get you that much closer to being able to act when it is prudent to act. Also, I was talking with Jason Wygan about this, and I, I think it's really important to give people things to look forward to. Even if it's not, you know, uh, cemented, just having people give, give them, give them something to think about like, okay, well, we're, these people are planning on going racing in June. Let's try to get to June. Right. I I think that's so critical in all walks of life is to maintain that optimism and something that you're looking forward to because, you know, just keeping your mind out of the right now, because the right now is pretty bleak and I I don't know that it's going to look any brighter in the next couple weeks anyway. So, uh, that's kind of what I had on supercross and outdoors and, and current events. Um, I'm going to talk about a lot of, uh, <laughs> it's going to be story time. And I promised this last week, so I sh- probably should have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, but the rest of this podcast is going to be devoted to, uh, just memories and stories. And I'm not going to do all of them today. Um, but I'm going to get into a few because we don't have any racing to talk about. And I get asked about these things quite a bit. And to me, it's, it was just my life and the things that I lived through, but some of it's just pure comedy. And I don't know why racing (laughs) 
attracts some of these people. But, you know, Tim Ferry has always said that he's like racing just attracts the biggest weirdos and some of some people you would never run across in any other walks of life. And I don't know if he's right or wrong, but he always maintained that theory. But some of these stories are just, I look back on them and I, I can't even believe that that actually went on, but they're funny, man. They're, they are hilarious. And a lot of them were not funny in the moment. There are some of these stories I'm going to be laughing at and hopefully you're going to be laughing at were really serious and really stressful points of my life. But now, you know, we survived and we, we got past it or I did anyway. And yeah, let's, let's hope that coronavirus is, is something that we can look back on. And, you know, of, of course we're always going to, you know, look back and, and, uh, be sorry about the, the people that are losing their lives over this thing, but let's all, let's hope we can look back on this coronavirus and, and be positive about how we responded to it and the things that came from it, maybe the way humanity came together and, you know, the, the doctors and all of the industries out there work together to, to find a cure for and find a vaccine. Um, I think that may be one thing we can look back in 2030, you know, 50 years when history books are writing about this, there's gotta be some sort of positive that comes from it or else I think we're, we're missing a greater opportunity. Um, there's going to be a lot of hardship and a lot of death and a lot of sickness along the way. Um, but you hope that humanity learns something, uh, from it so we can maybe prevent something like this from coming down again. So before I get into the stories, I want to talk about some of our sponsors, uh, Pirelli tires. Uh, if one thing I've seen from this whole deal is that people are riding more than ever. And that's, that's absolute fact. There are so many people out riding and it's awesome. I love to see it. People that whether they couldn't go to work or just took days off, um, they're out there motoring, riding the hills, riding trails. Um, the weather's just turning for a lot of people, which has also created a great opportunity. But it's it's a perfect time to go buy new tires for your bike. Get that bike dialed in your downtime. Uh, if you're working from home, that gives you more time to work on all this stuff. So go out and pick up some new Pirelli tires for your bike. I'm gonna go on a street bike ride here this afternoon. So, uh, I'm going to probably be looking at some upgrades for my street bike because I'll have more time than ever to ride it. And, uh, Pirelli tires could be on, uh, on the horizon for me. Blends all oils. Talk to David over there. He's pretty bummed because a lot of the events they had scheduled, whether day in the dirt South or, you know, a lot of the two stroke events that were going on either got postponed or canceled. And, uh, yeah, that was a huge bummer. The stuff he had planned with Michael Lessie and the blends all racing stuff they had going was, has been pushed back. So that's a bummer. Uh, he did want me to mention though, that they have uh, t-shirts and merchandise now available. I'm going to have to actually order me some of that stuff. And, uh, also blends all 25 will get you 25% off at blends Of course, Western power sports is a distributor of blends all. So I should mention that, but if you do go to blends you can order any blends item for 25% off, uh, with the code blends 25. So pretty cool deal. Just trying to, uh, to give people, a little uh, discount in these hard times. Plum Creek funding, Zach Morris, uh, we've been talking a lot because obviously you've seen all the stuff going on with the Federal Reserve and rate, you know, rate cuts and all these things. One thing he wanted me to mention is just because you see the, you know, the Fed cutting the rate to zero, that doesn't mean you can go get a 0% home loan right now. That's not the same uh, same bucket, with, so to speak, as far as what home loans are. Um, you can get a lower rate 
it is helping. Uh, I talked to a couple people that have gotten in, you know, the 3%, a little over 3% uh, loan right now, but it's not the 0%. I think that's probably been the biggest misconception. It's like, oh, I can go get a loan, a home loan for 0.25%. No, you can't. People still have to make money and that's not, that's not the situation. So if you have more questions on that, reach out to Zach, reach out to me. I can get you, um, his contact information. He's on Instagram too. Um, I believe it's Z Morris 38. Uh, I should probably have checked that before I said, but either way, if you do have questions, uh, the housing markets, I think going to be affected. I think housing prices are going to come down just because the, uh, the ability to buy for a lot of people, or I should better say that most people are going to be unwilling to buy now because their income is going to be much less secure. So we'll see how that all goes. But if you have questions, if you're uncertain, if maybe this is going to be an opportunity for you, which maybe it could be for me, uh, reach out to Zach and just see how that's all looking and make sure you are prepared, whether you're selling, buying, or just want to see what your property is doing, uh, reach out to him. It's not going to hurt anything. And I know he is open to having those conversations. Works Connection. Uh, I just was checking out their Instagram and, and their biggest thing is they're still open for business. They want people to know it. Uh, they're kind of in the same space as a lot of people, right? They're, they're a moto company and the more people riding is good for them. That's a good thing. You know, how long this goes on for, we'll have to see how, what ripple effects those have. But for right now, people riding their dirt bikes and working on their dirt bikes is a, is a positive impact for works connection. Get your bike dialed in, put, you know, buy that skid plate, get your throttle tube, um, you know, upgrade to titanium foot pegs. Uh, you can, you know, if you're going to go do some off-road riding, put those radiator braces on. If you're, you know, if you crash in single track or whatever, spend money with these local businesses and these small businesses to, uh, to really support the sport, right? It's, it's going to be really important, probably more important than ever that we take care of, uh, these companies that are absolutely dependent on day-to-day business from the moto community. Premier Vapor Blasting, another small business that's going to be dependent on all of us. And, uh, you know, he falls right in line with these other companies where used bikes and used parts and used riding equipment, this is your chance to dial that stuff in, right? If you don't have the money to go buy a brand new set of, uh, you know, $600 tech 10 Alpine stars, you can get those refurbished and you can get them, uh, looking like new from premier vapor blasting. So there are things that we can do to, uh, make it easier on us say to go riding. So I want to thank uh, Brandon at premier vapor blasting for being on board. And also he's offering a 25% discount. If you, if you mention the industry seating podcast. So, uh, I love that these guys are being proactive. They know that there's going to be business to be had. They know that people want to support them. Uh, shout out to Randy Richardson who has been posting every day about supporting local businesses and small businesses. And he's been truly doing his part. So kudos to, uh, to Randy. If he, if he listens to this, um, he's a, he's a really good person and he's, uh, yeah, proving that every day. So fly racing, the last sponsor I want to mention, we're going to be doing some Instagram live stuff this week. Uh, Weston Pike is up on Monday tomorrow. I'm recording this on Sunday. He'll be the first one up and answering questions and, uh, yeah, just, just getting people engaged. Right. I I think most people right now are looking at their phones more than ever and just trying to find things to pass the time. And so we'll, we'll be trying to add some content and some entertainment. I'm going to do one this week as well. Uh, and we're going to get a lot of our athletes involved. 
So we'll see, uh, see what Weston <laughs> I'm a little scared of the things that Weston's going to share with people, because I know he's, he's, uh, he has very strong opinions, let's say. And I, <laughs> I think we're going to have to <laughs> ask him to, to go easy on people, but Weston is who he is and he has a very strong personality and, um, yeah, I think he's kind of a no nonsense guy if you haven't picked that up already. So we'll see how that goes, but, uh, still have the formula helmet giveaway coming. Uh, I'm going to do it on April 4th weekend. That was Denver. So if you have questions, uh, please keep submitting them. And, uh, I'm going to pick the, the question that I like best. I'm going to probably ask a few people at work too, to, uh, get involved in it. Um, there is no real, uh, trying to think of the word I want to use. There is no stipulation or, um, concept that I'm looking for. It's pretty open looking for creativity, something I hadn't really thought about that made me think a little bit. That's most likely going to be the one I choose is just one that kind of catches me off guard and, uh, one I have to put thought into. All right. So let's get into these stories. I've been looking forward to this. (laughs) Some of these, some of these are going to sound ridiculous. Um, you know, it's, they're hilarious now. And seriously, writing some, writing these notes that I made, um, I was laughing writing the notes, right? But at the time, I, I can't tell you enough how stressful they were and how mad people were. And it was just, you know, chaos. It wasn't, it wasn't funny games like it is now. So I try to do these in chronological order just to, uh, build some sort of timeline as how my career was ongoing. Uh, so I turned pro in 97, uh, end of 96, I guess I started racing, uh, pro-am races just to get my feet wet before 97 supercross kicked off. And, uh, first couple of years were, yeah, they were up and down, made some main events, but nothing really to write home about. Got a couple top tens and 125 supercross and was, was getting better though. Uh, got a top 10, uh, at steel city, the final race of 98. So that was pretty good and uh, ended up getting a ride on a team that was called Excel Yamaha in 1999. And originally it was going to be a joint effort between Nolene, which was, uh, had been bought by a guy named Brent Russell, I believe. If I got that wrong, I apologize. It's been 20 years, but uh, I remember he had bought it from Clark Jones, who was the founder of Nolene and they wanted to go racing. They enlisted a guy named Mark Vanscourt to kind of consolidate the effort on their side with the Excel Yamaha guys. And I signed my contract with Excel and then all these things were going on. They were trying to work it out. They had, they had Tim Ferry signed up who was one of, if not my best friends at the time. And that we rode literally every day together of that 98 outdoor season. And, uh, so it was pretty cool for me because I was going to get to be teammates with not only someone I looked up to probably more than anyone else racing wise, but also one of my best friends and training partners. So that was cool. I think for Timmy, he was kind of like, uh, like, you know, he had this Nolene deal that was locked in and then they were kind of changing everything to try to co-op with Excel Yamaha and and pool resources. So I, I really don't think he was all that 
pumped on it. I think he was more excited about the fact that he was going to have his own team and his own box fan and they were going to go racing. Uh, similar to what they had done in 98. That was basically the same exact scenario they had in 98. So I think changing and adding riders, which would have been myself and Josh Demuth, and then uh, another kid, um, Kurt Jennison, I don't know that he was all that thrilled about it. Uh, it just would have, it was going to absorb a lot of resources and a lot of money. And the more riders you have and staff you have, it just gets harder. Things get spread out, efforts get spread out. And, uh, I just remember him being very hesitant about the whole thing. So anyway, we are getting ready for the season. Um, got a pretty late start, you know, with bikes and all that stuff. Um, I ended up, uh, just going out and getting a Yamaha to ride while they were trying to sort all this stuff out. And, uh, we had till February, which was good because we were racing East coast. But in that meantime, Timmy had already started getting ready to go racing. And, uh, they were still planning and working out the bugs. And finally, I think the way I remember it, Nolene just pulled the plug and said, forget it. We're going racing on our own. Uh, this isn't coming together how we thought. So they went racing in their box van again in the West coast, uh, big bike rounds. And then that, all that work and all that talk and, um, excitement on my side anyway, just kind of went away. Um, so he was racing, doing his thing. And, uh, yeah, we were still super tight and practicing together and all that stuff, but, uh, weren't going to be teammates anymore. So we got ready to go racing in the Excel racing, um, semi that, uh, they had bought, they were a dealership in Columbus, Indiana, and Scott Wools was the owner of it. And Scott was, Scott is a great guy. Um, uh, to this day, I don't hold anything against him and you'll see how this all played out, but um, the team, you know, ended in a, a pretty poor fashion, but I don't think it was Scott's fault. And he was, he's a good old boy from Indiana and, um, had a, a Yamaha dealership. He had some fi- financial support behind him and he really wanted to go racing and make it work. Really smart guy. He did the, the engines on our bikes and my 125 was stupid fast. So, um, I don't want this to come off as a negative thing towards Scott, but, we went racing, myself and Josh were racing East coast and Kurt Jennison was not turn hasn't turned pro yet and was still working his way up. Well, his dad was our team manager and, uh, I'm not even going to say the guy's name because that's about the level of respect I have for that guy. But I just remember every step of the way, this guy being so greasy and just a con man. And, uh, Joshua, so Josh and I are getting ready for the season. We go racing and we're doing pretty well. I remember my first race, I got, uh, eighth at Tampa, the East coast opener and Josh got sixth, I believe. Um, so two top 10 guys on a privateer Yamaha team. That's, that's pretty damn solid. And, uh, I remember Josh being in the mix battling with the lead guys. And I knew he was, he had a pretty bright future. He, his top end speed was better than mine. Uh, but I thought we had a really great start to, um, the 99 campaign on a brand new team, you know, unproven everything. That was pretty awesome. So I was optimistic about it, but I just remember uh, the team manager who I won't name just, God, he gave me the worst feeling. And I, I saw the moves he was making with the team and was hearing stories about the way he was approaching the racing with his kid. Like literally there was nothing 
that this kid wasn't getting. He was getting like a new engine, you know, a new piston like twice a week. And just, I mean, keep in mind, Demuth and I are both running top 10 in East Coast Supercross and we weren't getting really anything. Like we couldn't even get parts half the time. And this kid was getting everything. And I don't think that Scott was being clued in as to the spending that was going on, all the parts where they were going. I, I, I'm actually positive that he wasn't. And it was just like, it was brutal. And I was too young to really get it or see it at the time, or I would have probably came unglued and gotten fired, which <laughs> is what would have probably happened. But looking back on it, this guy was just burning Scott's money. I mean, literally like had a bonfire out back and just was setting it ablaze. And that was pretty unfortunate. Um, but going through that season, going through Supercross, uh, Demuth ended up getting a podium. I ended up, uh, I think my best finish was sixth. And we both ended up in the series top 10, which is, you know, that's pretty awesome. We really didn't have a lot of Yamaha help, if any. I think Josh ended up getting some towards the end of the season. But uh, finally, Scott started to see through all this crap that the team manager was doing, just, you know, lying, stealing, burning money, um, literally every bad thing you could ever do as a team manager or a business partner. So he finally listened to us. He, he called us in and actually, I don't even know. I think we went in on our own accord and said, Scott, dude, you've got to get rid of this guy. He's, he's terrible. Like he is a literally a piece of garbage human. That, that's what I wrote in my notes is he's garbage. And he was, and I would tell him to his face this day that all those things he did, I, I just have zero respect for that guy. And I haven't seen him in years and I hope I never do again. Um, but he ended up finally getting fired, which was a good thing before the outdoors. Actually, no, we had already raced one outdoor. We were at Mount Morris and he got let go. And I just remember everybody being like a sigh of relief that the owner finally saw through it, but also not knowing, you know, who was going to manage the day-to-day stuff, what that would mean for the team. How much damage did this guy already do? Right. I mean, there was, I can't even imagine how much money this guy burnt. Right. So, you, you know, that's going to take a toll on the ability to run the team and the future of the team and, you know, our viability as riders because of, we're, we're dependent on those resources uh, and, and for us just to make money racing. So season continues. We're, we're doing OK. Josh and I are up and down results. Um, nothing. I don't remember the races being all that good or all that bad. You know, we certainly wanted to do better. And we even talked about switching, uh, putting me on the 450 and him on the 125 at one point, and we decided against that. But really, the the reason for the story, <laughs> we go to Steel City, and th- those of you that are younger may not even remember Steel City being a, a national, but this was the always the final race, and it used to happen on Labor Day weekend, and it would wrap the series, and uh, it was one of my favorite tracks. So we go to Steel City in Pennsylvania, right outside of Pittsburgh, and we show up and it's, you know, business as usual, but for some reason we see that the semi is parked out in the parking lot and I'm like, what the hell? So right, you know, right when I'm pulling into, in my rental car, into the, into the track, I see the, the semi is parked out in the grass, like not in the pits. And that's, that's not a good sign immediately. Right. You're like, what, what is that about? And this is before like cell phones and texting really, and all that stuff. So you, it wasn't, you know, there was no social media. So communication wasn't what it is today. So I pull in and my dad's already there and it's just, it's pandemonium. So what had happened was this 
jerk off that I keep referencing. That was the former team manager. He had worked with a repo company to repo the, 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 uh, I believe it was the tractor. It could have been the trailer. I don't remember its details are escaping me, but one way or another, he was going to leave with the tractor and trailer. And I don't know if Scott had not made the payment or if there was some sort of shady dealing, because I know that that guy had done the deal to secure the, the semi-trailer. So he probably was screwing Scott over somehow on this deal. So all this is happening at the race, right? And it's, it looks really bad and we don't know what's going to happen. We're all trying to get a hold of Scott. So <laughs> the guy's basically saying like, I'm pulling this track, this trailer out of here and you guys aren't racing. I'm, I'm about to load it on, you know, hook it up to a tow truck and I'm taking it back to Wisconsin where it's, where it's got to go. This guy was from Wisconsin. So we're like ready to fight this dude basically. Cause he's going to take away our rate, you know, our, our ability to race. And we all hated him anyway. So my dad just goes full, like, you know, red alert and just starts, I just remember him taking parts out of this, the semi trailer and just throwing them out into the grass. Right. Cause he's like, if we get the stuff out of the trailer and they repo the trailer, we can still go racing. Right. We can still have parts and bikes and everything. It's the last race of the season. So we'll make it work. So he's just, and you'd have to know my dad and some of you that listen to pulp show have an idea, but he when he sets his mind to something and he goes into that mode, there is no stopping him period. So he's just hucking plastic and silencers, gas cans are just flying. And I'm like trying to stay out of the way because it's like, if you've ever seen like a dog dig a hole in the dirt and they're just shoveling things out behind them, that's pretty much what he was doing with the parts cabinets. There's just stuff flying out onto the grass because his thought was if it gets out into the grass and is not in the trailer, this this idiot is not going to be able to take it and, um, impact our ability to go racing. So picture about 10 minutes later, the entire trailer is now outside of the trailer and laying out on the grass. And it looks like a complete yard sale and, and the literal sense of that, there's just stuff everywhere. And anybody that drove by is just like, Oh my God, what is going on over there? And I, I can, I can remember looking and seeing people looking and pointing at what was going on, but in the moment, it was the right thing to do because Josh and I wanted to race, right? We'd work all season long. We'd work all week that week to go racing. We'd flown to Pennsylvania. So it was the right move. It was just so funny. Look, thinking back on how it was going, it's just parts flying everywhere. And my dad just in the zone, right? He is just grabbing everything that he deemed necessary to go racing. Forget about, you know, um, stuff for the awning. Nobody cares about any of that stuff, right? It was like wheels and tubes and exhausts and gas and oil and clutches and just stuff is just flying in every direction. So this is ongoing. And finally somebody gets a hold of Scott and then Scott gets a hold of, uh, whoever, I guess, whoever would have held the note on the truck and trailer and they sort it out. So basically that company calls this, um, person I will refer to as the idiot, uh, team manager and tells him basically to, to beat it, right? Your, your services are no longer needed, uh, on this truck and trailer. So <laughs> that guy finally, um, tells everybody, okay, I'm, I'm not towing this back with me. Uh, and we all basically tell him to like pound sand and, you know, don't ever let us see you again. Right. We're all like really mad at this dude at this point. And then we all look around and like, well, let's load the trailer back up. And there are parts scattered 
everywhere. They're like just loose levers laying on the ground in the grass and clutches on top of that. And then like, you just look over and you'd see just a shroud, right. With no, no graphics on it, just all by itself over in the grass somewhere. Cause somebody had taken it and thrown it as far as they can, like a Frisbee just to try to get it out of the trailer before this guy, you know, I don't want to say stole it, but repoed it or whatever he was going to do. But yeah, that was just a crazy memory. Um, yeah, we raced, had the trailer, everything, uh, went on normal that weekend. And, uh, I don't know that I ever saw that dude again. I think I, maybe I did is his kid raced some and I did see him again. And every time I saw him, I, I had the urge to fist fight the dude. Um, cause he's just, he's just a terrible person. I mean, he literally is just a terrible person. So, uh, and I mean that I don't, I don't, I don't hate a lot of people and I don't know that I hate him. It's not even about hate. He's just, he's just a bad person. So anyway, that team, uh, we were moving forward, um, that off season, Demuth and I both re-signed, uh, Yamaha came in to support Demuth, uh, more, more than me. And that's okay. Demuth's results were better than mine, but we both got new contracts and, uh, yeah, that all fell apart at the last minute. And really it came down to all the damage that that former team manager had done finally caught up all the spending, all the wasteless use of resources all caught up. And it was just, it was too much to overcome and the team, you know, folded because of it. So, uh, bad deal left me in a really bad spot for the 2000 season. But again, uh, I do not blame Scott Wolves. He always treated me fairly and, uh, was always straight up with me. It just was a really ugly ending and a really bad ending, um, to what could have been something pretty cool. So, that was, uh, yeah, that was the Excel Yamaha team in 99. And I bet Tim Ferry <laughs> looks back and is, is happier about it more than anything that he just didn't get caught up in any of that mess because he would have been right in the middle of all that drama had the, uh, the merger actually happened that year. Uh, my next story is, uh, one that some of you are familiar with, um, going into, uh, the 2001 season. I, uh, well going into that season. So the end of 2000, I had, I had some options and that that's a good thing. If you're a racer, having options is always a, a great place to be in a, and a rare place to be honestly. Um, but I had done well in 2000 coming off of 99, going into the uncertainty of 2000 with no ride. My dad and I hit the road and, and we did pretty well, uh, made a ton of main events on both classes that year. And Art Ekman, did me a, a huge favor by always pointing that out on TV. And, uh, then I got the opportunity to go to Canada that summer in 2000, did pretty well up there, got a lot of podiums and between racing in the U S on the off weekends of Canada and then racing that series, my results were great. I got a, a seventh at steel city again. Um, and I was just riding well, things were clicking for me. I was, uh, I guess turned 21 years old, uh, that summer and things were coming easy as far as my riding. I really wasn't riding all that much. I wasn't practicing all that much, but I was racing a ton, right? In the Canada series, you would ride Saturday, they would have practice. And then I would ride four half hour motos on Sunday. Cause I would be, I was racing both classes in Canada. So it was almost more of just recovery during the week and maybe ride one thirty or something just for maintenance. And I, I ran a lot back then but I wasn't killing myself during the week. I was just trying to recover and I would have pretty long flights to Canada back and forth each weekend. So 
the end of that season, I remember being at Steel City and I had offers. I had an offer from Blackfoot Honda and that was a, you know, basically factory Honda for Canada. You know, I had a contract with Honda uh, on the table and it was pretty good. They were actually going to race Supercross the following year. And I was taking that very seriously, that deal. Jason Mitchell, who uh, was the team owner and the owner of Blackfoot Motorsports at the time, I was in contact with him daily and I really trusted his judgment and trusted him as a person. He was just great, always great to me. I took it, um, I took it seriously. I wish I would have maybe taken it more seriously, but I know in my heart, I wanted to race in the U S that 2001 season. And that was the most important thing for me. Um, Canada was good money, but it wasn't where my heart was. I, I still felt like I was young enough to quote unquote, make it in America. And things were really trending upwards for me in America. I was getting top tens in uh, big bike. The 250 class was the big bike series back then. Supercross that year. And I was just getting a lot better. And coming off Steel City, I got the whole shot in the second moto and finished seventh in that second moto. And I, I just remember being, I need to be in the U S right. I have a chance to really do something and, and make a lot of money, maybe get a factory ride in America. So I really weighed that more heavily, maybe more heavily than I should have. And I had a conversation with, um, DKNY Husqvarna, right? So that was the factory Husky team back then. And it was run by fast by Ferracci, who, uh, most, many of you will remember from their Ducati, road race fame. Well, they had factory equipment. They had a lot of money to work with, which was, uh, that was obviously a big part of my decision-making process was I knew they were well-funded and, and resource wise, they, it wasn't going to be shoestring. And, um, I had a conversation with them at steel city and <laughs> I kind of shot myself in the foot because I was doing my own negotiating. And that, that day I had a really good day. As I said, I went, um, I think I went 11, seven and that second moto, I really turned heads because I, I led the first lap or part of it anyway. And then I got seventh and I was battling with, uh, I was actually not far behind, um, some really good guys I had no business racing with, right? Like elite factory guys. I beat Damon Huffman. I beat Larry Ward. I beat some legit guys who were all on factory bikes. So I, I thought it was a huge statement race for me. And what I should have done in hindsight, I should have went into the Husky truck and demanded a huge amount of money, right? Way more than I, I did. Um, but that was the inexperienced, um, more desperate kid that I was than someone who just came off a great race and had leverage and should have known it. Um, so yeah, I ended up agreeing to a deal there. And I remember my dad's, my dad's first comment was like, you didn't get enough money out of this deal. And he was right. He was a hundred percent right because what he was looking at was on that Husky deal. I wasn't going to get contingency for, you know, if I got 10th place, I wasn't going to get that anymore. Uh, I had bonuses, but they were top three. So I was losing a lot of potential earnings and I wasn't going to be able to go do my own gear deal. So there were just a lot of revenue streams that were now going to not be there anymore. So I should have really leaned on those guys on my salary. And, you know, it's just one of those things you live and learn, but sitting here today in 2020, man, I would have hammered those guys on salary. And if they would have balked, I would have taken the Blackfoot deal. And, um, yeah, it would have been, it would have turned out much better for me, but 
I learned a lot of lessons. Um, but I, you know, I, I wanted to race in the USA above all else in the outdoors. Um, you know, the, the Blackfoot Supercross thing, they were, they were kind of waving that carrot as like, Hey, we're going to go race Supercross. But I knew that summer would be all about Canada again. And that just wasn't, I wasn't where my heart was as much fun as I had and all that stuff. It just was not the U S motocross series. It wasn't as prestigious. Uh, it just, it wasn't where I had wanted to be and what I had grown up wanting to do. You know, my, all my racing, you know, uh, years had been geared towards this American motocross dream. And that unfortunately just wasn't Canada, right? That just wasn't what I had always wanted to do. And I think that probably weighed more heavily than anything else. So I ended up signing Husky deal. Shouldn't, I didn't get near as much money as I should have. And that's, that's my own fault, but man, it, it really was a interesting time. So we go into that off season, 2000, uh, things are progressing pretty slowly to be fair. I didn't get a bike. I don't, th- man, I want to say it was like the end of November, I think until maybe middle November when I got a bike in Florida to actually start practicing. And that's, that is just terrible. That That's really unacceptable for a factory team, to be honest. And I ended up, I raced the U S open on a Husky. I rode it for an hour before the race I had no business racing it, but I, I was young and dumb and wanted to go racing. So of course had a terrible weekend because of just unfamiliarity and scared of the bike and didn't know what it was going to do. And then I had to wait another month to get a practice bike. Well, luckily for me, uh, Sebastian Tortelli loaned me his Honda at the time, which was hundred percent, uh, against what his contract allowed, but he knew I was in a bad place and, and let me ride it. So that was really cool of him. And, um, yeah, I just, tried to get as ready as I could. And then when my bike showed up, tried to hammer down, um, testing was interesting. Uh, <laughs> I'll explain why. So as I mentioned before, the fast by Ferracci team was crazy successful in road racing and they had really smart technicians and a lot of support from Ducati. And they were really innovative with their, uh, modifications. And they had a really successful business of, uh, selling street bike modifications, exhaust, and all kinds of hop up parts on the street bike side. Well, Araldo Ferracci is a legend in the road racing world. And this was, this team was his baby. So testing, he wanted to keep all of his same guys, right? The problem was these guys didn't know anything about moto. They didn't know any of the motocross lingo. Uh, it was a completely different dynamic to anything they had ever done. And you have to understand that moto guys and, and road race guys are, they're a different breed from each other. They, you know, these, these road race guys are now dealing with dirty bikes and dirty suspension and dirt all the time. And they hated that, right? Their, their sports usually super clean and they're, they don't really care about motocross. This wasn't their passion. So they've been forced into a sport that they didn't care about. And, you know, obviously they wanted to keep their jobs and now they had to relearn everything. So for us, as riders, we're trying to explain what our bike is doing and what we need it to do and changes to guys that don't really understand what we're trying to explain or how it's supposed to work or all the nuances. And it was just a complete, it was just a mess. And I remember telling my suspension guy that my bike was packing, which was basically, you know, the rebound was too slow and he, he didn't know what I meant. Right. So I would just, 
so many examples like that of your suspension guy doesn't even know what packing me like that, that doesn't exist really in the moto world. And it was just like that all year long where we were constantly chasing our tail on equipment and just being up to, up to par with the equipment we were racing against. And Kajiva USA was the owner of the team and they were the importer of Ducati Husqvarna and MV Augusta for, uh, America, right? So they're the, the base owner of the team. They were spending money. It wasn't a, f- and, and they told us that and had meetings and they explained all that it wasn't a lack of spending. And I commend them on that. They didn't cut corners. Um, it was just, we were so far behind the eight ball on the beginning of our equipment to, you know, the base production unit was so far behind. And I remember Mitch Payton telling me to my face is like, Hey, you know, your bike is so far behind on technology as a just rolling off the showroom. There's no way you can catch up. You know, if you had a, if you had a full works GP bike, you would have a chance because you could, we could change everything on it and make it competitive, but you can't, you have to run a stock frame, which your frame is so outdated. It's never going to work correctly in supercross because it's, you know, it's based off of a 10 year old design. And then the rest of it is, you know, the, your cases and all these things are, are just, they're outdated. You're, you're in a really bad spot. And I was like, Oh, great. If Mitch Payton doesn't think he can make the bike good, you know, how is anybody going to make it good? Uh, so it was just kind of like that all year long. Nobody ever really did anything solid that year. I mean, Travis Preston did win a race. That was pretty awesome. Uh, the 125 was definitely more, um, relevant as far as that goes, you know, Kiko Coyote had been world champion. So they had, they had made some steps forward on the 125. Uh, but the 250, the two stroke 250 was just, it wasn't, it wasn't good. It was way behind what we were up against. And I remember years later, uh, Araldo Ferracci did an interview and I think it was in racer X. I could be wrong on that, but I think it was where he was basically blaming the riders for just not getting it done. And I just remember thinking, you are so, how, how can you even sit there and say that when you look at what the riders that left there went on to do? Okay. So remember, this is the 2001 season. Travis Preston leaves there, goes on to Geico or well, would have been factory connection Honda back then. Now Geico Honda, he wins a supercross title. Okay. So take that. That's, that's one. You have Chris Gosseler who was on that team. He was on 25 supercross rider and, and pretty highly paid that year. Relatively. He goes on to win races at uh, Geico Honda. He goes on to race for Mitch Payton, tons of podiums, right? He was legit, right? So that's another rider that left there and found success when he got onto a different program. Myself, I left there. I can't, had really good success in 2000, went to Husky, didn't do well, and then left there. And then my career picked back up again, leaving. Right. So example after example of guys, it wasn't that we just couldn't get it done or we sucked or whatever. Right. It was just the situation. And, um, I don't think it's really fair. I didn't think it was fair at the time for Farachi to blame us. I don't blame him. You know, they spent a lot of money. Uh, I just think that it wasn't the right time. The bikes weren't in a good place for success. The 250 needed a complete overhaul, the 125 needed more work, uh, but it was coming. It was getting better. Um, Lamson was developing it as fast as he could. 
but that's a really long process. And they obviously threw in the towel, you know, a couple years later. So anyway, that Husky year was just crazy. Um, there's so many stories and you look back at the, the lineup that they had between myself, Steve Lampson, Travis Preston, Chris Gossler, Damian Plotz, um, who else? I'm trying to think. They had Brian McGavern at one point, but he got fired. But we had a lot of talent on that team and uh, some crazy good good times and good memories and good stories. It just, you know, unfortunately, the results never came. That next year, they, they thought they would solve all their problems by going out and hi- hiring Tyler Evans. That didn't work either. Uh, he rode that 252 stroke, and it wasn't any better. Um, kind of the same results. So, yeah, just interesting times. And you look and you see where the Rockstar Husky team is now, you know, the same name, but completely different equipment, different ownership, different everything. And, uh, yeah, I, I laugh at those guys because they're, they're so lucky to have the equipment they do now versus what all of us were dealing with all those years ago. So anyway, moving on. And this is, uh, this next one is pretty interesting, right? So this is what, we talk about a ton on the Pulpamex story or excuse me on the Pulpamex show. Uh, but the subway Coca-Cola Honda team, and this came at a really good time for me. I needed to get back on track. I was racing arena cross at the time and I just wanted to give arena cross a try. It, it was really doing well. Uh, and this would have been the end of Oh two. And the series was rocking and rolling. This was when, you know, um, there was money in, in that series. You could make a lot of money winning those titles. Buddy Antonez was just killing it. Josh Demuth, they were making, you know, high mid to high six figures a year racing that series. And, and I knew I could do pretty well if I got everything sorted. So I, I gave it a shot that O2 season and got hurt at the first race and it just wasn't working out. So I got a call to go race, uh, for that subway, uh, it was still subway at the time. And then Coca-Cola would come on later, but I jumped at the chance. Um, I had to basically beg and plead my way out of a deal so I could go race supercross again, because that's really where my heart was. And, uh, I just felt like the arena crossing was cool. If I stuck it out, I could have maybe sorted it out. I, I had just gotten a podium recently in, uh, Memphis, but I wanted to be back in supercross and I kind of knew that watching some of the supercross races go on to, to begin the season, there had been three or four. And I just felt like, man, I, that's where I am supposed to be. That's where I need to be. Uh, so the opportunity really came along at the right time. And, uh, I didn't know much about the team. Luckily for me, uh, John Mitchiff, who we all lovingly refer to as throttle. He was there. He was the, he was a mechanic, but also kind of the crew chief. And he knew that, yeah, they, they needed results. They needed guys in the main event and they, he knew that I could do that. Right. That was something I had proven year in and year out that I could be a main event guy. And they really needed that to happen. So he referred me to the team owner that was Chuck Schultz. And we had a pretty short conversation. I just told him I'm in, uh, they were on Honda four fifties, which was a huge part of my decision making process. I wanted to be on a Honda 450. Uh, I just needed to get out of my team green deal, which they, they thankfully let me out. Dave Anilak and Craig Martin, uh, who I, I actually work with Craig now, they let me out. So I'm thankful to them for that, for being understanding, even though it wasn't probably ideal for them. So i I hopped on a plane immediately and, uh, I flew up to Chicago. They picked me up 
and we were going to an indoor facility to go test the bike. This would have been on like a Tuesday, I believe. And it was right before the Minneapolis Supercross. So keep in mind, I had been riding a Kawasaki 125 and 250 in arena cross. And, uh, I'd raced a, a, um, Honda 450 the past summer, a couple or two races. So I had some familiarity with it, but I had not been riding one at all. Right. So I hopped on uh, a buddies that I still had and just, all right, I got to get used to this bike before I fly up and have to jump on a supercross track on a 450, uh, rode it around some, and then it was go time. I, I am practicing the next day in an indoor supercross track on a 450, trying to work through settings, testing the bike. Uh, but I was fit. I was, you know, um, I adapted pretty quickly. I knew the bike a little bit and it's really easy to ride, right? It was a stock 450 as far as engine. So it was really mellow power. And I was sharp because I had, I was still racing arena cross. So I had just raced the weekend before. Um, so I felt like it came together for me pretty quickly, all things considered. And then we were off, we were on our way to Minneapolis and I really didn't have any expectations, but I, I just wanted to get in that main event and kind of prove myself. And I knew if I could qualify, everyone on the team would take a deep breath and they would all be so pumped and feel like we had made, you know, they had made the right decision and that, uh, this was going to be something we could make long-term. So fly in there, I make the main event, I qualify, which was awesome. And then I go out and get 10th place, which was just huge, right? To get a top 10 for those guys at that time when they were, they were getting pressure from sponsors and they needed to get some results. Uh, that was, that was awesome. And I knew they were pumped and I was obviously thrilled about how it went and, uh, yeah, off we went. Um, they guaranteed my spot for the rest of the year and, uh, we went racing. So that Oh three season kind of goes, you know, the rest of the way. And it was good and bad. Wasn't always good results. I had some rough weekends, but, uh, finished top 20 in both series, even, uh, with the late start to supercross, I still finished in the top 20 of the series. And then had some pretty good races outdoors. I think I got 10th at Steel City to wrap the series up again. So it was good. I mean, it was everything I could have wanted. It really rejuvenated my career and got me back on track, so to speak. And the team was uh, really taking steps forward. We had nice um, sponsorship bumps from, (laughs) fortunately enough, Fly Racing at the time. And Subway stepped up. Uh, There were a lot of positive things happening for the team. Uh, it was a really, it was a family atmosphere. Uh, we were always around Chuck's family and spending time in Illinois. He lived in a city called Beecher, Illinois, and we'd be there quite a bit. And I'd stay there and go practice, uh, during the outdoors there a lot, just because all the resources were there. You know, the race shop was there mechanics were there. So it made my life easy on that end to, uh, to spend a lot of time there. So go through that season. Oh, four, we bring on Clark styles. Uh, many of you remember him, uh, from, you know, back in that time, he was one of my buddies and he was doing really well in that Oh three season. So that was a, um, pretty nice move for the team to, to get him and strengthen the team. And, uh, that Oh four season, I remember being pretty good. I, unfortunately I tore my ACL at Sandy or no, where was it? Um, Anaheim two, I tore my ACL and, uh, luckily I only had to take a few weeks off. And I raced at shoot. It's still torn to this day from that, uh, that night. And, um, just one of those things where I, it was stable enough where I was able to work through it. Yeah. It sucked for 
months and months and months taped up and braces and all kind of, you know, getting it drained and all kinds of nasty stuff to continue racing, but it slowly, but surely got better race through four, pretty good year. All things considered top 20 in both series again. And uh team, you know, all the while is continuing to grow. Uh, I'm sure Chuck was putting a lot of money in his pocket and I was doing well too. I, I'm not going to complain. Um, I think there could have been better distribution of resources at times. I knew there are a lot of ugly things going on in other aspects like mechanics, getting fired and quitting and, and that, but that's pretty normal on some of these smaller teams. There's just a, always that situation for some reason, but Chuck was always taking care of me. But at the same time, I think I was delivering results for him, which was he, he needed to take care of me to make sure that I could do my job. So there was a little bit of, uh, uh, I necessitated that, that care. Um, I saw other guys not being as well taken care of and that's unfortunate, but at the time, you're just, you're in this bubble and you have tunnel vision. So, and I was young and, and probably wasn't as worried about it, but, uh, I just remember things getting better and better. That's, that's the feeling I had in 03 and 04. And then we go into 05 and we have more resources than ever. Coca-Cola came in as a sponsor. Our bikes were getting better. The, the 2005 Honda 450 was seriously, it was unbelievable. That bike took such a huge step forward in production they put the 250F frame on the 450 and it made it so much more nimble, it turned way better. Uh, we agreed to have our bikes built by Pro Circuit, which man, Mitch had such a great uh, Supermoto engine package for the uh, Troy Designs Honda team that year. So we were the benefactors of that, getting a, a great engine and uh, throttle who I had brought me onto that team who I mentioned he was my mechanic had already left to go to pro circuit. He was at the time winning supercross championships with Ivan Tedesco, but he knew how good that 450 engine was. And he again hooked us up and uh, said, Hey, you need to be on a pro circuit engine. They have this thing dialed. And I think we were, uh, just under 60 horsepower, something like that for our outdoor engine, which at the time was, was really good. Um, yeah, maybe that's not that impressive now, but I remember being on my bike that year being like, I have one of, if not the fastest bikes on the line bar none. And uh, that was a really good feeling. It wasn't a common feeling for me throughout my career. So that was pretty cool. But just the team was getting better. You know, we, our look was really solid. Um, the graphics that our bikes were, you know, the best, one of the best bikes I ever had period. And things were going well. I was riding better. Uh, I was winning races in Europe. I was doing well in America. Um, everything was just clicking, but there just started to be little hiccups, um, coming down the line and Oh five, I don't think it was all that bad. I think 05 was pretty solid. I remember getting seventh at Houston, but then as we rolled into the 06 season, things, things really started to get rocky and I would just hear rumors, right? You would hear stuff about money and, uh, bills not getting paid and people getting screwed over. And you're kind of like skeptical because on, from my perspective, everything was great. I had all the parts I needed. I had, we had a deal with Honda just to give you a perspective, we had a deal with Honda for 20 motorcycles. It was Jeff Gibson and I 20 motorcycles to keep right with, with, uh, ownership slips, which is awesome. So you're, you figure you can sell those bikes. That's another hundred grand probably at the end of the day back then anyway. And 
$10,000 in parts, you know, Honda OEM parts. So you're talking clutches and, uh, engine pieces and cranks and all the stuff that you need to buy from Honda. Not to mention all the aftermarket stuff we were getting at no charge too. So we had, we had resources. Um, Subway was putting in a lot of money. Coca-Cola was putting in a lot of money. Uh, our gear sponsor at the time put in a lot of money. Uh, so there, everything was good. I had a salary, you know, with the team finally, and you just wish that would go on forever. And it, it really should have looking back on it. It should have kept going. And yeah, of course, here comes the, the greed part of the equation, right? Um, as I mentioned, you start to hear about things getting not paid. And meanwhile, you know, Chuck's house is getting bigger and you see him buying a new truck and you're like, Hmm, well, I don't think that money's getting spent on the team, but at the same time he was successful in his business too. So I, I don't blame him or judge him for spending money that he was making off the race team. This was his business. So if he wanted to spend that money, that's great. But he also had to be responsible for everyone else's, uh, the budget and income and being able to pay for things and all that stuff, right? He was the, the owner of the team and the financial manager and all that stuff. So we were all dependent on him to be responsible make good decisions, not do things, which I'm going to bring up here in a second. Um, which ended up being the downfall of the team. Now I should have known this sooner. So basically what Chuck was doing in 05, we got this huge Honda deal, right? At 20 bikes and all these parts and all this stuff. And that was awesome. And I think our results were, you know, we deserved support for sure. We were, uh, we were doing well representing Honda well, and there was a lot of money in the sport at the time. So it, it was before the great recession and all the cutbacks. But what Chuck would do, he would take all the bikes, right? You would, we would get 20 bikes in a semi truckload and he would take and sell all of them except for a practice bike for myself, a practice bike for Jeff Gibson and a practice bike or excuse me, a race bike for each of us. right. So he would take four bikes out and then he would take the other 16 and maybe, maybe he kept two more back. So let's say he sold off 14 or 15 of those bikes immediately. So whatever he would generate from that, I mean, they were brand new. So I'm sure he sold them a couple hundred bucks under retail or whatever to, to get a good deal on them and generate however much money that was. Let's say it was, I don't know, 70, 80, 90 grand, whatever the number, maybe more than that. And that, who knows what he did with that money. Maybe he used it to fund the early rounds of the series. Maybe he put it in his bank account. I don't know. In hindsight, I should have freaked out when he did that, right? And I don't know, he probably would have told me to pound sand and fired me, but that is not the way to conduct a race team. You don't take Honda motorcycles that they provide for you for the team to go racing with and go sell them off. His plan was he would sell them, have money to fund the team, and then as we needed motorcycles throughout the year, he would go buy them, buy bikes as needed from uh, our sponsor with Service Honda at the time that was a pretty horrific plan and not one I would ever be okay with now, but I'm, you know, I'm older and smarter now. Uh, but yeah, he, he would get us bikes when we needed them. So I will give him credit there. He did follow through on getting us motorcycles, but where it really got dicey in the first sign of a problem, right? So we go to Thunder Valley in 05 and I remember 
for the outdoor season, he had purchased bikes for, well, let's say he'd gotten bikes from Big Valley Honda, which is uh, near Reno, Nevada. And I, I do business with them on a fly racing level now. And I didn't think much of it. I was like, oh, okay, cool. We got bikes for outdoors. This is part of the plan anyway. Let's go racing. Um, yeah, sweet, brand new bike. Well, they show up, right? The owners of Big Valley Honda show up to Thunder Valley race and it's the closest one to them. You know, I Hangtown would have been, but this, the bikes were brand new at Hangtown. So they show up to, to Thunder Valley and I'm in staging and I'm, I'm in the zone. I'm, I'm focusing on the, the race I'm about to go do. And they want to take my bike away from me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> the guy's like literally grabs my handlebars and he's like, Hey, uh, I know this isn't your fault but I have to take this motorcycle back. And I'm like, uh, excuse me. Well, and I, man, I, this may have been 06. I'm really having a hard time remembering if it was 05 or 06, but bear with me. The story is still the same. He's like, yeah, uh, Chuck bought these bikes from us and was supposed to send payment and never, never did. Won't return phone calls. Won't contact us. Nothing. You, so these are our, mo our motorcycles. I have the titles to them right here. I'm taking this bike with me. And I'm, and I'm like, you're, no, you're not like, I'm going to race this bike right now. Like I'm in staging for my moto and he wasn't mad at me, but it obviously got tense really quickly. And it turned into a negotiation with me and the owner basically being like, listen, I, I don't know what's going on. This is all news to me, but please let me race this bike today. Like, this is my livelihood. This is my whole life wrapped up in this, you know, racing world. And if you want, I'll ride my bike into your trailer from the second moto into the second moto. If, if that's what the deal is, I will take my bike and load it up into your trailer immediately. And you can have it. That's, that's not my place to decide that, but all I'm asking is a little mercy for myself and Jeff Gibson here. So we can race, race these, you know, this race and make some money today. That's all. This is all we have. So he was cool. I, I give even to this day, I'm thankful that he was like, okay, I understand. Uh, but these we're either getting paid today or we're taking these bikes home. And I'm like, fair enough. If you haven't been paid for these bikes, that's, that's completely within reason. So long story short, Chuck made amends with these guys that day and we kept our motorcycles, but I'm like, I remember leaving there, you know, and I didn't understand business very much at the time but I'm like, how does that happen? How does a team with the resource that we have that we're given Honda motorcycles, this should never happen in a million years that we are getting our bikes taken away from us in staging. We have Honda's given us bikes. If, if Chuck Miller, who was the American Honda guy at the time who gave us our deal, if he knew that this happened, he would lose his mind on Chuck for, for one making, you know, a Honda dealer, putting a Honda dealer in that spot. And two, what are you doing selling the motorcycles that he provided? So I was just, that was like the first sign of like, maybe things aren't as good as I'm, I have pictured in my head. So fast forward, we, we finish out the season. And if that was truly 05, um, then we go into 06 and I remember Chuck getting behind on payments to me and he wasn't uh, paying my salary on time. And I was getting pretty frustrated because my results were really good. And I knew that our, 
our budget had gone way up as far as sponsorship money and um, the Honda deal had been renewed and all these thing, great things were going on. There was zero reason for me to be behind on payments. And I, I knew that. I knew enough to know that. So we go to uh, we go to Houston Supercross and there had been a weekend off before it. Um, at, I believe it was for Easter. And we show up and I'm frustrated that I haven't been paid. Um, and Chuck's there and he, I hadn't seen him in a few weeks. I think he had maybe skipped a couple of races or something, but I go to dinner with him on Friday night and he's talking about, Oh, we went on this cruise for Easter and so awesome. It was crazy. Like really, really luxurious cruise and flew to Florida and all this stuff. And I'm, I'm like sitting there like, Oh sweet. Like glad you're able to spend all this money. And he's like, yeah, check out this watch I bought. It was five grand. So he, he he's like, you know, just putting this $5,000 watch in my face, telling me about this cruise he went on and all this money they spent with like zero thought as to how I'm viewing it, right? He owes me a lot of money, tells me he doesn't have the budget to pay it right now. But then he, in the, the very next breath, telling me all this money he spent on a watch and a cruise, but, oh, don't worry about that. That's that's money that we make from our businesses. That's not race team budget. So they're completely unrelated. And, you know, uh, I shouldn't even think of it Think of it that way. Well, sorry, dude. I'm thinking about it that way. And I want to fight you at Olive Garden right now. So I was getting pretty pissed about that. Um, and then this, it only got worse from there, right? The, the season's going on. You, you're hearing more and more rumors about Chuck not paying mechanics. I knew he wasn't paying me. Uh, I hear him, he's not paying his bills and he's starting to dodge people left and right. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse throughout that 06 season. So that all kind of comes to a head, uh, in the outdoors, um, going into Binghamton, the semi was coming off the road. He told me that their bills weren't being paid and that he wasn't able to pay to send the truck. So he said, no, don't worry. We're still going racing. I'm going to send a box van with your mechanic and yeah, go, go get results. Your bike's good. Everything's everything. Nothing changes for you other than you're just going to be in a box van versus semi. So, you know, naive me. I'm like, all right, well, it's better than nothing. I am ready to go racing. You know, I'm prepared. My bike's still the same bike and everything. I have my mechanic. He paid for the mechanic and the truck to go. The problem was, is that I was paying my own expenses and then I would get uh, I was basically getting per diem per weekend. And then he would, you know, go a few weekends and then catch up. Well, I was down probably four or five weekends at that point. And then that was just another added one to it. So <laughs> little did I know I'm paying for myself to go racing at that point. And, you know, I was just assuming that he would make good on all of it. So we go to, we go to Binghamton, we race, I think I got 13th or something, um, which wasn't too terrible. But then the last weekend, we didn't go racing at all. Chuck basically said, Hey, we're going to call it. I'm going to call it one weekend early and try to get the budget under control. Uh, but don't worry, your contract's still good for the 2007 season. We'll negotiate on your salary, but you're definitely my guy. I need, you know, you're on the team. I don't know if it may be just you. And I was like, ah, whatever, you know, I want to be here. I want to be on a Honda. Um, this is, this is the team I want to be on. We just need to, you know, it can't go on like this. So I started to hear rumors about the team folding and the truck getting repoed and really, really bad news. Right. And, uh, in the meantime, I'm just going about my business. I'm trying to get ready for off season supercross. 
I have a lot of prep to do, um, to completely switch my technique and prep over from outdoors to supercross, get ready for Montreal. All these things are kind of happening once I just, you know, once I hear we're not going to seal city. So Chuck, the meanwhile is getting things prepared on his end too. He's getting bikes ready to sell like the race bikes, prepping all those. And so I had a, I have a set of titanium suspension on my race bike or not suspension, excuse me, a set of titanium, everything, right. Um, com- complete bolt kit axles, but I don't think I ended up running the axles late in the season. Cause we broken a couple, uh, but you know, pit swing arm pivots, all the, the main stuff that's going to get your bike lighter. I had on my race bike and I, I had spent my own money on that. Well, yeah, thanks Chuck. He sold it with all that stuff on there. That's pretty awesome. But he was getting all these other bikes, uh, ready to sell to, you know, clean up the 06 season. Well, I had a set of suspension that he needed for, uh, one of the bikes to sell. And he owed me, I want to say he owed me around $35,000, something like that total, uh, between expenses and salary and everything. It was, it was somewhere in that range. Um, and I basically told him like, Hey, no problem. I'll send you a suspension to, to build that bike to sell. But dude, you got to pay me. Like I, I need money to live also. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to pay this. I'll sell this bike. I'll write you the check for that bike. And then I'll start making payments to get this number down. And I'm like, well, at least like give me my expense, you know, per diem paid back because I paid for all these, the last six races of the season to go do. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah it's on the way. So I, my last conversation that I had with the suspension, I, he said, okay, here's, you know, ship the suspension. Um, the check will be sent next week. You know, this was Friday and I'm like, okay, sweet. So I send him the suspension and literally, I'm not kidding you. I, I never heard from the dude again, not one phone call, never, ever, ever. Uh, he got that suspension, sold that race bike and never returned a phone call to me ever again. That was the last time that I heard from Chuck Schultz until maybe 2014. I saw him at a race, but never again. He never contacted me. He never told me that the team was folding for good. He never told me that he was paying me or not paying me. He just disappeared, completely disappeared from the face of the racing earth. And I know that the, the owner of the semi basically was driving and just waiting for him at his house because he owed him so much money. But to this day, I just cannot believe that. Like he just never contacted me ever again. Uh, and I'm, he was just hiding out, right? He, he had made a ton of money. He had burnt a ton of people and just disappeared, just left racing forever. And I still can't believe it to this day that that's that just was allowed, right? Nobody ever had any repercussions. Nobody ever like beat him down or I, he burned a lot of people for a lot of money and probably I would have to say I was right at the top of most money, but I was not alone as far as people that were, you know, hurt by his business practices. But yeah, that's just blows my mind that you tell someone to their, you know, on the phone directly, Hey, yep. Send in suspension. I have the checkout. We'll get the rest of this going and we're going racing in 2007. Don't worry about it. Just do your thing. So that's what I was doing. Luckily I had my bikes, uh, that I had at my house. I had, it was technically still Chuck's bike that, you know, he, he knew I needed to ride on 
but he had mentioned like, Hey, we're going to get that, have to get that bike back. We'll get you the new 07s when they come in. Um, but I still had that one. Obviously, you know, that was my only recourse of the whole deal is I was able to sell that, that practice bike that I had, it was pretty beat down, but I got some money back out of that. So maybe take that 30,000 down to, or 35,000 down to 30,000 that he owed me. But it was just crazy to think that he burned that whole team to the ground for no reason. Just, I, I can only attribute it to pure greed because there was money there. The team was well-funded, well-supported. Hondo had our teams back. And, and that would have changed probably in 08 or in 09 when they made huge cutbacks. We would have lost that support. But there was no reason why that team couldn't have continued on to be successful, to be profitable, to well-represent sponsors and... Yeah, that guy, that one guy just, he he blew it. He ruined everything. And, uh, man, that's, you know, where I was saying in the beginning of this where Tim Ferry always say, I don't know why this sport attracts these people. And maybe it's just all walks of life, but and maybe it's just our personal interaction. But, gosh, what a low-life move that this that guy did to not just me but a lot of people. You know, wasn't making payments on the semi. So another facet to the story, we had a really nice semi and it was owned by this guy named Vaughn and Vaughn owned a practice track in God, see if I can remember the name of the city, uh, Valparaiso, Indiana. And the track was just called Vaughn's. I think it was literally at his house, but this track was seriously amazing. I loved riding there. It was probably an hour and a half drive from Chuck's house. And I would ride there all the time when I was up there. But Vaughn had done pretty well for himself. He was uh, really passionate about moto and he would let us ride there all the time. And he wanted to be involved in the race team. That was it period for no, you know, not any business venture just because he wanted to be a part of it. So he agreed to buy a semi for Chuck basically because he had, you know, the credit to do so. And, uh, the only, the only thing Chuck had to do was make the payments. That's it. It was Vaughn's truck. Chuck would make the payments and it was basically like his sponsorship of the team was to be the owner while Chuck made the payments. Pretty good deal for Chuck. It was just a business expense to pay for it. And Vaughn would be a part of it. And that's all he wanted. He was just passionate. He worked with us on our training. He worked on all kinds of stuff. I would talk to Vaughn all the time. He was just such a good dude. Well, come to find out for months and months and months, Chuck wasn't making the payments and Vaughn didn't know. So all of a sudden Vaughn gets a call from the bank saying, Hey, uh, yeah, we are going to, uh, have to repossess this truck because it's not being paid for. And Vaughn is just blown away. Like he, you have to understand who Vaughn is. He's a really good person. He, I doubt he had run into many people that would burn him like this. Like this is just not how Vaughn would conduct business or life. And, so yeah, Vaughn was literally driving over to Chuck's house every day to confront him about this. And just like, what are you doing, man? Like if you, for me, even thinking about it now, like, why are you not making payments on the truck and trailer? Like, are you, are you, did you spend all the money? Did you, what did you do? Like, why are you burning people? Why are you, you know, setting this team ablaze that's paying for your life? Like it was, I'm sure he was making a good living off the team, even if he ran it fiscally responsibly. I just, it's still, I have more questions and answers about it. I would love for him to, 
you know, do an interview with Steve Mathis or something one day and explain his side. I would have to be on the other line though, because the stream of bullshit that would come out, excuse my language would be unbearable. Um, just knowing him and how he would twist it. But I would, I would love to hear his side of how everything went. Uh, but yeah, Vaughn got burned on that whole deal. Um, he ended up finally getting, you know, getting the truck back and able and selling it. But it just goes to show what this guy was, was doing, you know, not just to me, take me out of it, but to everyone involved mechanics. He, he didn't pay them a lot of money. He owed them. Uh, it just every, at every turn he burned bridges and left people hanging. And that, that sucks. I hate it that there are people like that in this sport and that, he took a very good thing that that was that team and just ruined it. He completely destroyed a really good, functional, profitable team in the pits. But yeah, it happens, I guess, more times than not, unfortunately, with these smaller teams. And uh, I just hate it. But anyway, um, yeah, that was the the rise and fall of the Subway team. Um, on all these stories, guys, if you have questions, like follow-up questions, please ask because I'll, I'll readdress them. There are, you know, I live through these things. So a lot of it seems obvious to me. Uh, but yeah, if I, if I, there are holes in the story or things that I didn't cover that you're wondering about, ask about them. I didn't go through all the stories that I even have notes for because I want to be able to have content moving forward. And, and there's a lot more stories to cover. That was only what, three, three or four. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny stuff, man. You to learn, good and bad. Uh, I, you know, racing kind of brings out that stuff in people and, um, the trials and tribulations and also, also the, the upsides of racing too. Uh, those are some stories I want to cover, like some of my best weekends and best times in this sport. And maybe I'll do some of that next Sunday is talk about some of my best racing weekends ever, because this, these stories obviously lean towards negative and, and, really tough scenarios, but they're funny now. Like when I look back and think about, you know, how Chuck just pulled the wool over all of our eyes and what an idiot I was for sending him that suspension, thinking he was going to pay me. Like it's it's funny now. I know I'm never going to get that money, but at the time I wanted to wring the dude's neck and I saw him at Atlanta in like 2014 or 2015 and his kids were there and his kids came up and, and, uh, were, Hey, how you doing? Like, you know, I'd spent a lot of time with his kids. I babysat his kids. So it's not their fault. I wasn't mad at them and I was nice to them, but I saw Chuck like in the kind of in the shadows hanging out, like waiting for his kids to get done. And I like, I couldn't even believe he had the nerve to even be there. Right. There are so many people that he, he burned in the pits that just despise him. I'm, I ha- can't believe he had the nerve even, that would have been seven or eight years later to show up. And I'm sure he, that's why he's not around is because he knows that's the sentiment out there. He probably, he's probably trying to avoid legal, legal troubles from being around too. Um, but yeah, they're just, there are so many stories all intertwined in the sport. Um, Steve Mathis has a ton of stories like that on teams he was on. It's not a unique scenario. He's, he's heard and seen and done these things too. And, uh, it's just a crazy sport. And a lot of these things, unfortunately, never see the light of day because you have to remember 
podcast didn't exist. Radio Pulp MX didn't exist. Um, Racer X podcast didn't exist. None of that stuff was going on. There wasn't a way to share the down and dirty things going on in the sport. Uh, you weren't going to, you weren't going to hear about that stuff in a Racer X magazine. You know, it wasn't, it's not a tabloid, right? They're not going to talk in, in rumor and speculation and tarnish people's names. And there wasn't, uh, obviously it's not going to happen on moto world on TV or anything like that. They're just never going to hear about that stuff. So all these stories just went kind of un, unexplained and no one ever heard about them. And people got burned on tens of thousands of dollars. And the people that were in the wrong kind of just skated by because there was no, uh, no one was ever held accountable unless you were going to legally pursue them. And the contracts we all had were garbage, right? They're just, they weren't even worth the pieces of paper they were printed on. So yeah, they basically just said, yeah, sue me. See ya. And that's how it went. And unless you were just going to catch them in a dark alley somewhere, there were really, there was no repercussion. There was no accountability. And that, that sucks. You would, you would think that people would be better than that. And they would just, you know, be a better person morally than that. But unfortunately that's just not the world we live in. Or, Or apparently that's not the world that a lot of people live in anyway. I'm happy that I work for, for a company that, uh, I've never seen take the easy way out. Um, I can speak to fly racing and Western power sports. I've seen them do the right thing so many times. It just seems like the obvious answer. And I, I, I know it's not the obvious answer. If you look in corporate America, you see just horrible decisions being made every day and stuff that really hurts people. I hope that, uh, we continue to be a beacon And I hope that as I get the ability to make more decisions in my own career, that I always uphold, uh, that honor and make decisions that other people would, you know, nod their head and say, you did the right thing. That is the the correct decision. And you're looking out for other people first. Um, and I, I think just to wrap this thing up, that's going to be more important than ever. Companies are going to face really hard decisions. Uh, it's, it's going to be in the face of everyone to decide how we move forward. Are you going to have to make compromise and do things that are going to be painful to protect your workforce and protect the people around you? And I hope that whatever influence I have, I hope that I can, I can be that person and be a shining example. And I hope that everybody approaches it that way. And and that's not always going to be possible. I get it. Right. Um, take Feld, for example, I don't think that anybody there wanted to lay people off. I, I can imagine that was extremely painful to do. And the tears that were shed and the hard conversations, I, man, I can't even imagine what that was like. And I don't think anybody took that lightly and that's going to be, that's going to happen more and more in the next month. So to, you know, to everybody be kind, be gentle, uh, with, the things that you say and the the way that you approach things, because I, th- I think it's going to be more critical than ever. We're not going to know what other people are facing. We're not going to know the, the health issues and the financial strain that other people are under. So try to err on the side of, of gratitude and, uh, just kindness. Um, that's, <laughs> I have to say that's generally not my outlook. I'm usually more of like, you know, toughen up and suck it up type person, but I just think it's going to be a really challenging time for, for all of society, whether you're in America or Europe or wherever you are, 
uh, kindness is never going to be more important than it is right now. Generosity and worrying about other people as much or more than yourself is going to be something that we all need. So, um, anyway, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you to all my sponsors. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be pumping out more content than ever, both, uh, this industry seating podcast and racer X and pulp MX. We're going to really try to do some creative things if we can, uh, now that Steve's back from Hawaii and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll do the best we can for all you guys. So thanks for listening. And, uh, I appreciate you tuning in as always we went pretty long today, but there's nothing else to do anyway. Right. So, uh, please continue to email me, send in submissions, ask questions, uh, because I have nothing else to do other than work all day. And that will leave me time, but both before and after my hourly duties to, uh, to answer some of this stuff. So thanks again and see you.